0: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: From Variety, I'm Michael Schneider. Boy, no way, Glenn Miller. Actor John C. McGinley grew up during the heyday of the classic 1970s sitcom when producers like Norman Lear and James L. Brooks ruled prime time. There were plenty of well-written comedies that acted almost like stage plays in those days, but for a young McGinley, there was something extra fascinating about Lear's Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton series, all in the Family.
0: I, I doubt I got all of it. It just, uh, I was riveted by it. Can you be riveted by a sitcom? I think so. I, th- I, think I was riveted yeah. by All in the Family. Yeah. I had no idea where Norman was taking that thing. And I was a kid. So what year is All in the Family?
1: Uh started in 72. So, so last lasted 80. Old. Yeah.
0: 12. And I'm, still, I'm sitting here talking to you about it in, in 2018.
1: Yeah. And the fact that you still get to talk to Norman Lear about that. And, and oh, he I, love, is... I love you
0: <laughs> still. But I just got to talk to
1: people? <laughs> <laughs> oh. but but uh Norman Lear who I believe is 96 now is right. is he is yeah he he is wh- when you talk to him he is still on top of it he is at the top of his game he's producing he is uh you know someone who is just still whip whip smart political juggernaut yeah. It's it's you know we all could only dream of being that active and, and that sharp when we get to that age.
0: Yeah, the the other guy who does that, uh, the guy who produces Stand Against Evil with me, Dana Gould, um, works for Mel Brooks.
1: Another one who
0: and they work every day. Yeah, on I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you what they're writing. But yeah, they're, I was about
1: to say I, what's what's Dana. <laughs> they're
0: they're writing something, and they if Dana's not doing uh, Stan which he does tirelessly. Uh, he's with Mel Brooks over at yeah. uh, MGM. Wow. That big white Tara looking building.
1: Yeah, yeah. But you're right. There, there's that whole generation of, of. Reiner. Yeah, I mean, Carl Reiner. Uh, i sorry. Carl yeah, Reiner. yeah, Carl Reiner. Not to be confused with Meathead. Um, but uh, they, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Uh, Dick Van Dyke? Yeah, who are we had
0: Dick Van Dyke on Scrubs? He was
1: miraculous. Still, still, yeah. There, there was something in the comedy waters because
0: like. that whole group worked that whole group worked together. Yeah, on the show Mary Tyler Moore did the one before it was Mary Tyler Moore, the Dick Van Dyke show. They all worked on that. Yeah,
1: well, they all like your show of shows. They all worked with Sid Caesar, who was you know really whip smart until the end of his life. So there, there was something about working in comedy at that time. <laughs> I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the podcast, we talk to Stand Against Evil star John C. McGinley about his series, acting, Hollywood, and his wide-ranging career, which includes everything from platoon and office space to scrubs. And we talk about his favorite episode of TV of all time, All in the Family's season two episode, The Elevator Story. It's my favorite episode. My favorite episode is about to
0: start. Episode. Episode. Real, the next episode.
1: All in the Family was still a relatively new show just in its second season when the episode The Elevator Story aired on New Year's Day 1972. It was the first episode to take place entirely outside the bunker house as Archie takes Edith, Gloria, and Mike out to dinner to celebrate Edith's birthday. But when he realizes that he forgot to mail an overdue bill, Archie races over to pay it and gets stuck in an elevator with an African-American businessman, a Puerto Rican man with a wife about to go into labor, and a secretary. And Archie's in the middle of it all. For John C. McGinley, it was quite a memorable episode and one that he even got to discuss with creator Norman Lear, a longtime idol of his. Currently, McGinley can be seen on IFC's Stan Against Evil, now in its third season, and McGinley said he was inspired by Archie Bunker in coming up with the motivation behind playing Stan. So when we asked the actor to select his favorite episode of TV of all time, it really was a no brainer.
0: So I chose uh, All in the Family, the scene, the, second, the episode from the second season where Archie is trapped in an elevator with um, a, a rainbow. Of minorities, um, a black couple, a, a Puerto Rican couple, uh, and the Puerto Rican young woman is pregnant, and in fact, she will birth a child in the elevator in this episode. Right. And the only backstory on it that really salts the peanut in a more lovely way for me is that I got to meet one of the only people I hero worship, which is Norman Lear. Yeah. Uh, I got to meet him through my friend Paul Hip. They have a podcast. And I met Norman, uh, and I, started, I immediately started blurting out that uh, we've crafted a TV series that we're in the third season of uh, called Stand Against Evil. And the protagonist, we borrowed liberally from Carol O'Connor and Norman's uh, rendition of this patriarch, this mm-hmm. kind of overbearing patriarch. And that lit his ears up. I meant it as a compliment. Um, and I, that's, that was to have terminated the conversation. Just I wanted to pay you, Norman, all respect and tell you that you are, uh, you are creatively and um, spiritually and emotionally helping me to really authentically create this, this guy from the archetype that, that you impacted with, in me with so profoundly yeah. when I was growing up.
1: And now he's suing you for copyright infringement. But. No, <laughs> what
0: happened was that opened up the pathway to yeah. sharing stories. And so Norman, and I'd already read his book, so this was when the book came out, two years ago? Yeah. Uh, I'd already read the book, and he proceeded to uh, tell me. In the book, he explores the elevator scene in pretty great detail, but in person, it's even better. Yeah. And so uh, why did I spark to it? I sparked to it because... Uh, I guess knowing the backstory, Carol didn't want to do the episode. In fact, he didn't show up for work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: Lawyers got involved.
1: He, he, he was going to walk away because he didn't like the ending, right? Or, Correct. Or what was, what
0: was the backstory there? The backstory was he didn't like, he didn't want Archie in that circumstance.
1: How so? How come? We'll never know. Yeah.
0: But he, li- he either left the state or he left the uh, the stage and the where where they shoot it? Did they shoot it over at universal or did they shoot it someplace uh, I else I think
1: they shot it at uh, Metro Media which oh, is now okay. a high school but so uh, they,
0: they shot it all the way in town um we're we're here in Santa Monica or on the edge of Santa Monica and so they were all the way in town Carol leaves um, the alarms start to go off uh he's pulled back in and begrudgingly he does the episode and he's magnificent in it yeah. because he's largely a silent film star in the episode he reacts more than archie carol connor made archie and norman made him a, a classic initiator he initiates everything so yeah. in acting you can do one of two things you can initiate and you can react and if there's if those are in balance then you have a chance for something to percolate if there's too many reactors then it dies if there's too many initiators it's the stuff we hate to see when um, um, actors are like um, um, baby chicks in the nest trying. Everyone's trying to get the worm. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. A perfect example of that is in Office Space. Um, the two downsizers are me and this other actor from uh, Chicago. And he was classic reactor. So I got to initiate all the interviews in Office Space. And then he, he was in a reactionary capacity. Yeah and it gets to be music in improv, yeah. it gets to be music. Anyway, I digress. So um, w- why it impacted me was a, a guy who is, functions so surgically in the format of All in the Family as an initiator with, with Gene Stapleton always being a reactor and the Meathead always being a reactor and Gloria always being a reactor, yeah. all off of Archie um, just spitting out initiations. And in this, he can't. He's trapped. Yeah. And so he becomes this observer, and all of a sudden you see what a sublime, layered actor Carol O'Connor is. I didn't know Carol O'Connor, but he clearly impacted me pretty profoundly growing up. Yeah. Uh, and by the end of it, uh, he's handed the baby, and he just starts to weep. I just got to chill. Um, <laughs> and I, it... It yeah. caught me off guard. It caught me, it catches me off guard right now thinking about it. And whatever, it's funny, taking some poetic license and speculating, maybe Carol didn't want to go there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, um, Maybe that's a really slippery place. Yeah. That That quicksand of vulnerability where actors, when they go there... Sometimes we we go quick, and maybe that's not where Carol. I'm totally speculating.
1: Well, you know, it was only season two, so this was still pretty early in in the process. So that may be part of it too, as as he was still sort of exploring the 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 sort of the the lengths of who Archie Bunker is, maybe, and how far emotionally do you go with him? Um, you know the. The thing that I love, because uh, I went back and, and uh, rewatched it, is the the sort of the sparring. Speaking of the yin and yang between him and Hector Elizondo, who plays the not, not a Puerto, not, a bad, not a, a bad guest star, right, right, and and you know, so he plays the uh, the Puerto Rican uh, who's the janitor in the building, and that's why they're stuck in the elevator because the the janitor is the one who would generally help them out but he's in the elevator with his pregnant wife and there's that sparring and then there's a African American gentleman who's also in the elevator but who actually harbors some racist thoughts towards uh, Hector Elizondo's characters so sure. there's there's so much going on and then uh 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 who is it uh, Elaine uh, uh what's her name uh looking it up right now uh Elaine Brennan plays the sort of ditzy uh, secretary who's also in the elevator. <laughs> about that for it's, an ensemble? It's a pretty great, I mean, that, that should have been a spinoff right <laughs> and there. That's just, your,
0: and that's your B team. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like they, they should have just spun off the elevator group uh, since, since Norman Lear was known you to could do that. do worse. Yeah. But um, um, I don't know if you had a chance to talk to, to Norman about this, but I've always been intrigued by his, he has a complicated feeling about ultimately how people took, Archie Bunker that uh, you know obviously he was he was trying to make a statement about bigotry and uh, sort of uh, you know put up Archie Bunker as a sign of this this is this is ugly this is what you should not be cheering this is the old way but people ended up loving Archie Bunker and there are a lot of viewers who watched all in the family and said yeah Archie Bunkers right and that wasn't really Norman's intention and I know he was—he had sort of a complicated uh, uh, sort of relationship with that character as a result. I, I have given no small amount of thought to that,
0: selfishly, as it applies to yeah. the construct that that we've Dana Gould, who's the executive producer of *Stand Against Evil*, which is our show on IFC, uh, which premieres third season on Halloween. <laughs> um, and w- when we were constructing who and what Stan Miller is. You can stumble into the, the Archie Bunker archetype, but it gets slippery quick. And the reason it gets slippery is that they're equal opportunity offenders. And in 2018, we we'll just change the channel. And so what floated Archie, what, what allowed us to, those of us who didn't love him politically, but loved him emotionally and satirically, uh, it's Edith. And so, uh, it's Gene Stapleton who's so magnificent yeah. and so I asked Norman about this I said, uh, w- and, and we, we borrowed from that for Stan uh, for Stan it's his dead wife and that redeems him and I asked, I asked Norman about this at a, uh, at a dinner party we were at once and he told me this really interesting story he said one time you might know the episode one time they had a trans um, a transgender storyline going and the character uh, gets killed. And Edith starts to circle the drain because her her Christianity is a huge part of Edith's whole arc. Mm -hmm. And she starts to question her relationship with God. And so Norman wrote this and then he couldn't figure out how to get her out of it, he told me. And so he went over to UCLA and he talked to a psychiatrist over there he went to um, he went to temple and he talked to some rabbis. He talked to doctors. He talked to he told me he talked to everybody to figure out how he can get her out of this. And after all the dust had settled and he'd assimilated all the input, he realized it was because uh, if she if she goes away emotionally and 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 spiritually, Archie's dead. Yeah. She floats Archie. Archie can't take care of himself, uh, and we saw it in Archie's place. It's uh, it wasn't the largely same. less interesting. Right, right. Um, there's some great stuff in Archie's place, but those two together, Edith floating him. If she loves him, then there must be something there for us to love. Yeah. If Jean Stapleton, in her magnificence, can can float that love and care for Archie. There's something there.
1: Yeah, yeah, and secondarily, Gloria and and Meathead, uh, you know, th- there's you know, very secondarily. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think it the the tipping point uh, we live and die with Edith. Yeah, and I can't believe we're talking about this thirty years later, but how I don't know if you could pay an artist a bigger compliment.
1: Yeah, well, when you you mentioned that you know doing a transgender episode in the seventies. Yeah, that's still kind of revolutionary in 2018. We're, we're just starting to see shows tackle that. So good, so, so, so. And
0: when, when, we don't really have a writer's room on Stan, uh, but we did uh, when we were doing uh, scrubs over towards uh, Valley Village. And there was, we worked at a, a defunct hospital and the different hospital could accommodate different groups. In other words, the actors were up on three and we shot on four, two, and one. And over in the psychiatric unit uh, was where the writers were housed, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. And they were in two separate rooms, and there would be seven writers in each room, and they would leapfrog each episode, and Bill Lawrence, who was the ex- executive producer, would would ride shotgun over wh- wh- whatever was needed. Uh, but when you went into that writer's room, and I'm, I don't know what this is born out of. I remember there was a lawsuit on it from friends, but you better have emotional Kevlar on because mm-hmm. they were savage.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I have no idea if it's still the same way. Uh, but Dana Gould ran the writer's room on The Simpsons right. for almost 10 years. I yeah. can't even imagine what that—yes, I can. I can imagine what that writer's room is like.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. There was that Friends lawsuit and—
0: uh, What was the Friends lawsuit? Did There was a young woman who— uh, yeah, that stuff wouldn't float in 2018. Prob- although prob- I think it still does
1: to some degree. Yeah, I, I think it depends on the room, depends on the show as well. Um, well, let me let me ask you about something that's been interesting. That that sort of is you know what you did both on Scrubs and now with with Stan Against Evil is you you do play this kind of Archie Bunker ish character who is surrounded by absurd situations. And obviously with Stan, it's 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 you know total sci-fi horror absurdity scrubs was much more just comedic absurdity it was almost like uh you know simpsons it had like the the, yeah, the cutaways I, I and, disagree, and things like
0: that i disagree fundamentally in that both are grounded scrubs the reason scrubs worked is it's grounded in emotional in an emotional reality yeah and so the people's favorite episodes of scrubs are, are when the wheels are coming off for cox yeah when he loses the three patients to rabies when brendan Fraser comes on and dies those are across the board, Yeah, yeah, ones. and so
1: that 's what I was going to ask you about, like you know the these absurd situations, what was sort of the the the, the draw for you, and it sounds like it was sort of the, still the groundedness of it and the emotional groundedness of these stories, even as there's cartoon elements happening there's still these grounded stories also happening, and the balancing all that what 's interesting when when Dana
0: uh, Gould, the creator of uh, Stand Against the evil. Came out to my house and they brought all eight episodes and I had read them. And I thought they were great and really subversive and weird. Uh, but I, I, I told them, I said, "This, this, the catalyst for the, this idea that I'm about to share with you is born out of your scripts. So you're the one who did this." And he, I think I think he was scared. And I said, you're, "You're missing how damaged this guy is. This guy's wounded, and I can only play him." When men are wounded, they become more interesting and yeah. they're damaged. Like Billy Lawrence, Dr. Cox was the, the penultimate damaged alpha male. Right, That's why he was interesting. Yeah. Because he was, he, he, there were a lot of missing parts for that guy. Yeah, yeah. And for Stan, we see in the, I, I told Dana, I said, you've written a guy who in the first three minutes that we meet him in the, in the premiere episode, the pilot episode, he loses his wife of 27 years and his job of 26 He's been fired from his job, and he has nothing. He has a daughter who he loves, but she's, you know, the Jonathan Winners of her generation. And uh, why are why are we just glossing over the how how wounded this guy is? Yeah. And I said, what's interesting, and what writers can write are damaged characters. Uh, and I said, you got to promise me if I do this, we can we can excavate and and dust off and make this guy responsible for. What he's going to do about these wounds, mostly emotional and and spiritual, or is he not going to do anything? And that's interesting. Is he going to so overcompensate and and not acknowledge what's missing? That's interesting. I said, but you, right now, uh, we're we're just taking the the express train past all these delicious stops we should be making on the local of, of, and the the train line would be the. Uh, the eccentricity train line would be um damages you you have to be uh you have to reconcile and he did it and so then i can do i can i can turn a joke and i can and dana can write them and i said but what's going to be really interesting about this guy and what's interest what was interesting about cox um was that they're hurt and when men are hurt they're interesting
1: and and uh and I think that's also why people still gravitate towards Cox on, on scrubs. And, you know, when you go back to the Archie Bunker, Edith comparison, obviously Zach Braff's character and his love for Dr. Cox and his need for Cox's love and approval and all that sort of gave us an in to also. I buy that. Really appreciate. That's Cox. Really interesting. To- I never
0: thought about Archie Bunker specifically with Dr. Cox. Uh, he just never came on my radar. Yeah, it was it was immediately clear to me with Stan, um, it, just because Cox is such a cog in the machine at that hospital, mm-hmm. and Stan's, you know, he's our guy. Uh, yeah, and I, I think to me there, I, I understand when you when you put it that way, there are some similarities. Uh, and what I always tell young actors when I'm working with them is that you're you're not any of these people. Um, you're uh, Bob. And if you can, I always ask them, "How are we going to reduce the, the profundity of the lie that you're going to exercise in front of the lens? How can we do that?" Oliver Stone helped us by putting us through this three-week boot camp in platoon. Now we didn't become soldiers, but it allowed people's hopefully get, actors are, are gifted and cursed with these imaginations that help them take a leap. If you get them, if you get them a little closer to to whatever the truth is. They, they can take a leap, and we were able to in Platoon. And with, with Dr. Cox, I just yeah, you got to move them a little closer because actors—what we're doing in front of the lens— I, I heard Malkovich say this once. It's just the whole thing's a big, fat lie. And when it gets good is when the lie— like Bob uh, De Niro became a boxer for all of us in Raging Bull. He's not a boxer, but we bought it. Yeah, He, he reduced th- the width— of the lie and that's all you're trying to do yeah. and whether it's grounding it in something uh, you know Robin Williams the, the, and Jim Carrey the, those guys can do it with sheer will and, and agility we're not them nobody else you know who's Robin Williams Robin you know who's Jim Jim they're the only ones who can do it Jonathan Winters could do it the rest of us have to you have to find something because that lens is like an x-ray machine and if you try to BS that lens, it'll just the the X-ray will come out negative, and you'll be exposed for being not good at storytelling, because we're not buying it for some reason. We don't even know why. It's just the lens doesn't suffer your lie, unless you reduce the profundity of it. If you can just reduce it, I don't even know what percentage or what the what the quantum math of it is all of it it is for everybody, but. There's just ways, so when, when actors play doctors, they're not doctors, but if you hang out with a doctor, and like I did for, you know, my son was born in, uh, down in Santa Monica, and I was in the hospital for a long time because of our challenges, and you start to get some of that on you, and hopefully actors can, can access those, those memories and experiences and wear them. And then the lens can be tricked just a little bit and then that's I, I'm pretty sure that's what good acting is.
1: Well, it sounds like Dana took took uh, your suggestion to heart. He sure did. That it, it really became sort of a driving force for the series uh, going forward, and uh, Stan's sort of you know wish of somehow being reunited with his wife, finding a way to, but the challenges that came with that, and now he's dealing with the aftermath in, right, in season. It's great,
0: it's great that he's not good at
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk. But he's
0: willing to reconcile the these this loss. He's willing to, to to if you're you know he's willing to roll it, but he's not good. He's not equipped for any of this. He probably never pulled his gun in the 27 years of working in this town, this uh, mythical town of Willard's Mill. He never pulled his weapon, ever. And now there's 172 witches trying to kill him, and all he wants to do is get on his recliner and watch the History Channel. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's great when people are under under equipped to do something that they have to do. Not that they're not choosing to do it. They just have to do it. And what makes Stan a really delicious anti-hero is that he will fight these witches and he will do the right thing, but only in the bottom of the ninth with the bases jacked and the motivating factor is he doesn't want to hear about it if he doesn't. Right. That's just great. <laughs> and that's our hero. That's who we're pinning our hopes on. Call action and get out of my eye line. That's delicious. <laughs>
1: yeah and uh things the as we had in I mean, he doesn't
0: want the championship belt he doesn't want to put the world on his shoulder he just doesn't want to hear about
1: it yeah yeah that's why he keeps slamming the door it's, on whoever shows up at his absolutely. house absolutely yeah that,
0: that's not an act yeah that's his truth,
1: yeah it's great <laughs> uh I enjoyed uh by the way uh the the episode two of season three, the x files parody um um, having some fun with, while while the world is uh, crumbling, and uh, as as Stan is trying to, you know, figure figure out uh, you know how to save the world, and and uh, it's 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 an interesting uh, dichotomy, in, in that Stan doesn't want to face it, he doesn't want to deal with all this stuff, but yet he's sitting down, he's he's reading these texts, these ancient texts, and he's he's trying to figure things out on his own terms. Well, I think the way
0: Dana has it structured now is the new normal is eight episodes, and so. Of the eight episodes in each season, four are uh, Witch or Bad Guy of the Week, and four are Mythology, that that, Mm -hmm. that move the mythology of the show forward. And uh, so Dana this year decided to uh, have a heavy, heavy dose of horror uh, Hall of Famers and, and scary Hall of Famers, of which he knows backwards. And... So, yeah, Shack shows up in there. <laughs> yes, um, love, 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 For people who know who <laughs> yeah. Darren McGavin was.
1: Love, love the Kolchak reference. Uh, yeah.
0: the, there's a uh, Mothra episode where uh, David, David uh, turns into a, a, a Godzilla. For people who know Godzilla, at one point he, he fights him off. Um, I didn't. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple of these throughout the season. Oh, we have puppets. That are bad guys in one. They're possessed by witches, Uh, and that's like a fever dream. Um, It's insane, and you know we show this stuff down at these comic cons, and people go nuts. Yeah, because there's a there's a certain bandwidth, which not for everybody. And if you don't know what this stuff is, it doesn't matter. It's wildly entertaining, but there's people who know all this stuff. We just got back from New York Comic-Con and we showed the, the Godzilla Mothra one. Uh, people were going bananas. Yeah, yeah. That's great.
1: Yep. And that's all Dana. He knows yeah. all this stuff. How, how do you shoot it? Is it? Uh... Huh.
0: <laughs> we do something which is, um, again, the new normal called cross-blocking. Yeah. So, I'm hearing a lot
1: about that now.
0: So, in other words, when you and I are in this uh, podcast room for episodes... One, five, and eight. We're shooting out this interior all this morning. We're going to shoot your. We're going to shoot the master of you and I sh- sitting here talking um, in one, five, and eight. Then we're going to we're going to shoot. We're going to change your wardrobe for five and eight and mine. Then we're going to shoot your coverage, your singles. We're never coming back to this location, this podcast location. We're going to shoot, the whole crew is downstairs, 150 people, light and cable into this room, but we're never coming back here. And so it's called cross-blocking, and I love it because I love putting blinders on like a Kentucky Derby thoroughbred and just, this is what we're doing for these five weeks. It's five weeks to shoot eight episodes, which is preposterous. Right, right. Um, so each episode's about three and a quarter days, um,
1: which is absurd. Which is absurd. Because that, how, epi- how many days did you shoot a Scrubs episode? It was like... Five and a half, six. Yeah.
0: And those were 16-hour days Yeah. Uh, over towards Valley Village. When we're in Atlanta, uh, we don't have we're, those are 12-hour days. We don't have the money to pay the grips and electric and everybody OT, and the actors. It's 12 hours. There's no overtime. Um, so the the only trade-off here, so it doesn't turn into a gripe fest. First of all, it's not a gripe fest because I love shooting this way. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do on a film set now, um, where it's where it's hurry up and wait for six hours while you know the Hungarian uh, DP changes the lighting and. That's an homage to Vilmos Zsigmond, <laughs> who was with us on *Fat Man and Little Boy*, um, but he was slow. Yeah, uh, and
1: you only get like one one scene <laughs> in a day.
0: Um, well, I forgot what I was saying. Uh, I forgot what I was you
1: were saying. just saying. It's going to be hard to go back to a, a movie set now that you're like in this like fast just paced. Go. Yeah, we go. I mean, is it like one take or
0: no? The takes are never. That's the big misnomer. Yeah, the takes aren't what take time. What would take time is lighting you and then coming around and lighting me and then moving back and getting the master and lights and cables. And now your key light went out, and so now it's a half hour to fix that right. key light. And are we going to now just move you over here and make it a two-shot um, so that we're both st- sitting next to each other and not, not look? We have to do something. Uh, but it's, uh, it's thrilling, and the trade-off, I know what I was moving towards. The trade-off for this cross-blocking, is Dana and I are afforded an enormous amount of creative autonomy. And the reason that's important is that both of us are obsessed with shepherding the tone of the piece. And what I mean is, with it as horror comedy, that spectrum that, that where it lives in, is the two extremes would be um, the exorcist, which is scary as hell, but you can't, you're not really gonna break a joke. You might, but not really. Uh, and the other is scooby doo where it 's funny, but the monsters are largely not a threat right and so the the all timers that live in the middle there are uh bruce campbell 's show um, and um an American werewolf in London right. what landis did with Rat. that is that's that 's kind of the that 's the high point how he mixed. You know, when Griffin and those guys are and Naughton are, are, are looking at that wolf, and you remember uh, what Stan Winston won an Academy Award, when his thing is growing, that's not green screen. They invented that. It's scary as all get-out. That wolf is scary. Yeah. And the, but then you get Griffin, who's a ghost, dropping jo- jokes everywhere. Yeah. You know, with that face. The, and the whole time, Griffin Dunn. And he's just, it's hilarious. That's what yeah. Stan aspires to um, uh, mirror. Yeah, yeah. And I would and say... And it's hard because if the jokes cannibalize or the jokes can not cannibalize... If the monster cannibalizes the jokes, you're dead. And if the jokes are at the... You know, if you just keep throwing body shots at the monster and you declaw the monster, you blew it.
1: Yeah, because you got some gross and scary monsters on this show. It's, this year,
0: one of the takeaways from last year was uh, the monster's got to be scarier.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the, Was that a network note or was no, that just no, a... no, we don't
0: get... They largely leave us alone.
1: Yeah. Because Dan
0: is so locked in uh, that they don't want him. They, they're just like Billy Lawrence on, uh, I mean, they're both great at their jobs. They've done this before. And they just make the network's job easier. Yeah. And so, no, we are not micromanaged. And Billy wasn't micromanaged. micromanaged. Uh, and that's why the thing comes out so well. Yeah,
1: yeah. But this was sort of just a feeling that you had in talking to fans or, or watching No, from Go, or, Dana yeah.
0: and I were like, this is where this thing lives. Yeah. Uh, and it's easy to forget you live in the middle of those two. Yeah. Because uh, either one can subvert the other uh, quick, and then you blew it.
1: yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting tightrope because you have know, there are scenes where it gets to be really gruesome, and you forget for a second that uh, you know I was just laughing a second ago, uh, and and then vice versa, the laughs come in, and you're like, oh, this is coming down easy. I'm not too scared. And, and then Dana did this. I don't know how much of season three you've seen, but
0: Dana did this unbelievably risky thing with the last two episodes, which work as a as a paired set, uh, three oh seven and three oh eight. Uh, that is going to leave everybody uh, who watches Stan uh, scratching their head.
1: Yeah. Does that lead into season four or?
0: Yeah, but he always, like like at the end of season two, when I asked him, you know, he's just ended the world and now hell has descended on earth. Uh, well, I said, where are you going?
1: He goes, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he picked up right from the the... the final scene in season 2. I
0: thought the way he did the first season of season 3 with, was with it was, was so much uh, grace and spine and what I mean is season 2 as it wraps up, it's the end of the world he could have just done a J.R. Ewing I know I'm dating myself with with Bobby somebody's head could have bumped against the shower somebody could have had a bad dream and none of that could have happened but instead he owned it and he made it so that the two protagonists Janet Barney's character Evie and mine the 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 direction of the first episode of season three is if they can chart a course through their own personal hell, they get to come back to here. Yeah. In a twenty-one minute, and thirty-five second horror comedy, that's pretty esoteric. And he and he nailed it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the best episodes we did, because I first of all descending out of the ashes of where the last episode of season two is. And then arriving at a springboard into season three, I just thought, Dana, I thought the writing was sublime.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, because you're right. We weren't quite sure where he would go from there. And no, it
0: could have been the old lazy writers' uh, convention of somebody bumped their head, uh, somebody had a bad dream, but he didn't go there.
1: Well, you mentioned that Dana obviously is a horror fan through the years. What about She's you? A horror fanatic. Yeah. Where, where where did you stand on horror? I like
0: more scary than I do the guy behind the door. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the scariest thing for me, and I saw it too young, was wait until dark when when Richard Crenna and Alan Arkin are are playing good cop, bad cop with a, um, a hearing-impaired Audrey Hepburn in the basement of a Greenwich Village flat. And I never saw the play. I just saw the film. And it was too scary. Alan Arkin was just, uh, I guess he was having the best time ever. He just was... Terrifying
1: to me. So you're more into the psychological thrillers yes. than necessarily the yes, the the, the the gruesome stuff. I get too scared. Yeah,
0: I get way too. Nicole, my wife, which I get way too scared. Like when I saw Halloween, I was the first year of school. I went was Ohio Wesleyan. I was in Delaware, Ohio, and that first Halloween came out. I guess that was the scariest thing I ever saw.
1: Yeah, I find that I like my horror with a, a, a nice dose of comedy. Same here. And, and so, so I do, wanna, I do
0: want to, um, I do want to, I want to surrender to you telling your story. If you let me, if you take me out of it because you suck, then I can't. But if, you, if you're going to execute your story and I'm going to watch this, I really want to surrender to the storyteller and I want to see everything you're doing. And then you're going to scare the living SHIT out of me and uh, it's, it's going to get on me for a while. Yeah. I'm going to look around the door a little bit and I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me because I was a kid in 1984 when Ghostbusters came out, that was the pinnacle because I was I the, the right age to be perfectly spooked by some of the ghosts on there, but it was hysterical at the same time. Uh, you know. Yeah, I guess I should put Ghostbusters up there with I never thought of that. Yeah, I yeah. But it's Ghost It's it's not scary. It's not as scary, and especially now as adults, it's it's not as scary as as say even like uh, American Werewolf in London. But there's elements of some. Yeah, maybe I'll sprinkle sprinkle that in there. Yeah, but
0: uh, yeah, because that kind of lives in the in the wavelength I'm talking about. They, I think they wanted to put some scary stuff in there.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think it it was the the right amount. Um. So, so you're uh, you're like in the the, the, the the series world in addition to the film world. Is this uh, you still like to go back and forth, or or yeah, do, you, do you I've, find I've, that the, the line has blurred at this point that you, it I've always doesn't really matter. Yeah, uh,
0: uh, whether whether you're doing. I was lucky enough to do a revival of Glengarry on Broadway with Al Pacino and Bobby Cannavale a couple of years ago, and to me, and I do I work with young actors and I, and they all want to know. But to me, there, there's no difference. Either the curtain's coming up or someone's calling action, and you have to do something. You have to, you, have to, you have to move some aggressive verb that serves the text forward. You have to do something. And it, the rest of it is all noise. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're at the Schoenfeld eight nights a week doing Glengarry or, or in Atlanta doing Stan. Somebody calls action or the curtain goes up. We're, we have to do something. Uh, we have to share stories. We have to engage each other, whatever the verb is. It, it's distilled that clarity. It, I've arrived at that clarity.
1: What, uh, what do you get asked the most when, when people uh, see you, say, at the airport or, or in the street?
0: It's demographically specific.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and so I don't know how politically correct – I don't know how to do it with political correctness. But different people ask me about different stuff, yeah. whether it's uh, Scrubs or Office Space or, uh, or now Stan or, uh, or Platoon or Wall Street or The Rock – that sounds arrogant as I'm saying it, I don't mean it to, but that's what that's what the stuff gets for yeah.
1: well, it's kind of cool that it's it's not it one kind thing of cool. that it's you' you're that's not, you're lost not on me. yeah, you're not being repeated to to ask about a certain thing or talk about a certain thing no uh you know it's so funny speaking of office space i had Ron Livingston was here yesterday, he's the best. and uh we were talking about you know he's got so many things going on right now at the same time too. Um, including Louder Milk, which is a cable show that he shoots, uh, just like uh, Stan. Uh, you know, oh, does he? Yeah, sort of the the cross boarding. Um, so, so we talked a lot about that, and he had sort of the same thing. A lot of people ask him still about Office Space. Uh, you know, some people well, ask. Great in it. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's it's it, he kind of feels the same way. Very lucky to have done multiple things, not being pigeonholed by comedy or drama or. Poor or or what have you that that's sort of the, the actor's dream right is is I think if you want to do this for a living um, then and if
0: you're lucky enough to get paid enough to do it for a living then yeah the the there's a premium on being nimble on on being agile w- within a, a certain spectrum uh, you know I'm I'm reminded of when we used to go in an audition uh, at Donna De Seta right behind the post office on, like, 34th and, and 9th. Uh, that was the commercial place where you'd go and audition in Manhattan. And there was always, you know, every commercial wants a Ken and Barbie type. And they'd have an African-American Ken and Barbie. They'd have a, a white Ken and Barbie. And then they'd have the altered Ken and Barbie. And about a half a dozen times, it was me and Franny McDormand. Mm. And so uh, I'm, I never got the Ken and Barbie. I but I got their dirty uncle, <laughs> and that's a better role yeah yeah it's a better role but for a little while there you really want to get the Ken and Barbie guy and that ship sailed and it's liberating
1: yeah and there's po- po- possibly more longevity to be the creepy uncle
0: fact <laughs> although I haven't got to be the creepy uncle I gotta play him
1: so what are you excited about what's next uh, on your docket that you can talk about
0: uh we have uh this weekend we have our uh our gala in Denver at the Global Down Syndrome Foundation um, where we have this fabulous night. It's called Be Beautiful, Be Yourself Fashion Show, and we bring in um, young people up and down the age spectrum who were all born with Down Syndrome, and then we couple them with different celebrities. Jamie Foxx is on the board with me, and we bring in a bunch of celebrities this year including uh, 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 Colin Farrell and uh, Jeremy Rayner, and the the models walk the runway with different celebrities. And it's pretty much the highlight of our year. And we bring the whole family goes, and it's great. It's a fundraiser. Uh, and then on November 30th, I was invited to give the keynote address at the uh, uh, Special Olympics 50th anniversary uh, uh, dinner in Washington, D.C. And I get nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't written it yet. Yeah. Um, but that'll that'll be uh, That'll be one for the books. Ask Dana to punch it up a little bit for you. I will send Dana <laughs> a draft, yeah. 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 For, I'll send Billy a draft, too.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Get, Why get, wouldn't you? you? You have some some great com- comedic minds uh, at your fingertips. Uh, they will, yes. Um,
0: yeah, yeah you, that'll ride out the year. And, and, and getting Stan, you know, in TV, the mandate is always get next year. Uh, unless you're at one point, NBC bought scrubs for three years that doesn't happen anymore people's um exposure networks exposure uh it's it's they trim their sales now it's a it's a tighter business construct and so the mandate is uh get you know promote stan and and get year four and do year four and that's what i'd like to do i'd like to ride Stan for a while.
1: So I, we're, we are contractually obligated these days to ask every person the same question, which is reboots. If someone came to you and said, we want to do another season of Scrubs or we want to do a couple episodes of Scrubs, we want to bring back the band. and
0: I don't think it would look like a, a season. I think yeah. it would be something different. Primarily because that ensemble has all, uh, Billy populated that ensemble with working actors. Yeah. Uh, Neil... Neil has been on the middle for ten years now, and now he has a new show. Uh, Zach is uh, a very successful director now. Donald has a new uh, Star Wars thing. Sarah's on Roseanne. Uh, Kenny, I don't know what Kenny's doing, but you'd, that would be. Uh, I think everybody would do it. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it looks like twenty. Yeah, I don't think that, it looks like twenty-two episodes. Yeah,
1: maybe it's like five or something. These days it seems like everyone has an opportunity to do so many different things at the same time now that I you I know but these... I saw an,
0: I saw a piece uh in one of the trades this morning where uh audiences appetites for reboots is going south.
1: I saw that too. And I think there there is that element as well. So
0: Because it would also be you know, we did almost 200 episodes of scrubs. And so if if you didn't if you didn't wring that towel dry of everything you wanted to get out of those characters, it yeah. begs the question, what were you waiting for? Right,
1: you even had that final Franken-Scrub season. Uh, yes, that, uh,
0: it was a great season, in the middle got, of, uh, what do you call it, it was in the middle of the uh, the recession. Yeah. And Billy called the, ca- the show, we'd already shot the series final. Finale, thing. yeah. Series, not the season, series. And uh, everyone was going off to do their things, uh, and Billy called, and another network picked it up. Uh, ABC picked it up, and Billy called, and this is the middle of the recession, and he said, uh, ABC wants to do 17 or 18 of them, and you'll get the money you got for season eight. Um, If you get a film, I'll write you a light, and you can go. uh, We can be really flexible here. The recession, there were no jobs. Uh, It was the easiest decision in the history of the world. Uh, It wasn't even... I mean, you'll get paid season eight money, which was an enormous amount of money, not in compared to friends and stuff like that. But for us, you were trading at your highs. Yeah, It wasn't, you you can come back at season three dough, uh, you got to bite the bullet creatively. It's like, no, no. So the only reason I say that is because were there some scrubs thing, uh, people are going to want to get their, they're going to want to get paid. And so... uh, That'll be a that'll be a variable. Uh, since creatively, what are you looking to do? Uh, right, right. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah. I, I'd be very surprised if some variation of that doesn't realize fruition. And I don't know what it looks like. Right, a uh, two-hour movie for so and so.
1: I don't know. Yeah, that'd be fun. Or a special episode of, uh, of another Bill Lawrence uh, series. Uh- <laughs>
0: no, no, you couldn't pay the people enough. Yeah. I love Billy. So uh, if if Billy's doing it, then uh, people come to Billy because he's he and Dana are the Norman Lear's of their generations. They're great at this. Yeah, yeah. What is this? Making really good television, which is impossible. Yeah, it's impossible.
1: Yeah, I mean both of them trained under. I mean. Bill Lawrence under Gary David Goldberg. Oh, good memory, yes. And, uh, and, and of course, Dana just going through The, 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 the Simpsons. Uh, you know, how is that not, like, the perfect boot camp for writing comedy? So. Uh,
0: but, th- the, you know, there are guys who did both of those things who who didn't rise the way Billy and Dana did. And so yeah. uh, what's great about Billy and Dana, one of the great things about them is on any set, they're the hardest-working people. That's contagious. Yeah. That's, they're not looking to go take, do a two-hour lunch with their lawyer over in Beverly Hills. They're on the floor of the hospital. They're at, the, at Stan's house when it's 115 degrees in Georgia and the humidity's 90 and there's a lightning strike two, two miles away and the grips are threatening to shut us down. They're there. It reminds me of my, my, one of my heroes, Arnold Copelson, rest in peace, who just passed, who produced Platoon. Arnold was in the Philippines with us. He wasn't back here at whatever the fancy lunch place was, uh, the lunch du jour. Um, Arnold was in the Philippines with us.
1: Yeah, boots on the ground. He was there. Yeah. And so was
0: his wife, uh, Anne was there. Oh, I'll start crying. And uh, th- that's different.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I can tell with, with, with Dana, well, with the both of you, I mean,
0: I can't imagine. Have you spoken with Dana yet?
1: Uh, I've, I've talked to Dana before. He's the so. best. He's a great guy. Um, really smart and he's really funny. So yeah. is Billy. Yeah, I love Billy. I've, I've <laughs> known him for years too. Um, but but I get the sense, you know, doing a show for IFC, you don't have the biggest budget in the world. <laughs> so <laughs> is that the understatement of the century? But um, you guys, so so you got to be scrappy, right? You got to be a yes. little sort uh, of you know. Sorta, you know smart and figure out a way to shoot this show and yes and and so that that's part yeah, of it if you that's... get over your
0: skis um you're dead because we're not going to clean this up on a green screen we're not going to do reshoots now we do pickups there's no such thing the the you know doing the green screen and all the computer stuff that's expensive yeah we have you in a rubber suit uh, and you're the monster and you've been in makeup for 13 hours and we haven't gotten to you yet and so you get, yeah, Scrappy is a good you got to figure it out. Yeah. Like big boys and big girls. And you got to play together, and all the actors have to rehearse, rehearse this like a play. Because as I was suggesting to you earlier, if we shoot 1, 5, and 8 this morning in this podcast room, and your aunt, in the context of the show, dies between 5 and 8, and she had a huge imprint on you, you're going to be different between 5 and 8. Well, we're shooting that all out here today, so you better have worked with your teacher— and gotten all this, the whole arc of your season, hypothetically, has got to be squared away in your in your actor brain. Yeah. Otherwise, we're dead. Yeah. We don't have time for you to go chant in the corner and light some incense and 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 fashion a ceremony that's going to allow the spirits, the acting spirits, to come to you and you and for you to ride. There's no time.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you thrive on that. I know I some people probably don't. It's probably a, a uh, qu- quite a learning process for, for others who have to adjust to that.
0: Well, the the core the the core ensemble of Stan has gotten great at it. Yeah, uh, Janet's unbelievable. Uh, I, I've called her the Jonathan Winners of her generation. That's not by mistake. Uh, Deborah is astonishing, and then Nate has had to do a lot of who, what, where, when, how for two seasons, which is pretty thankless. And Dana put all he could eat on his plate this year, and and Nate just shines and he just steals season three. It's great.
1: Well, John, uh, congrats on season three, Thank you. and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing seeing the rest of it uh, into I season can't four. Wait for you to see. It. So yeah, no, it sounds like some surprises for those final two episodes. So be looking forward to that. Uh, but good luck with everything. Good luck with uh, your your event this weekend, and also yeah, your you. your speech. So, uh, <laughs> John, not to not to put the pressure on you there. But, oh, it's uh, on. So, twenty two minutes. So uh, fill twenty two minutes. All right, well, hopefully, someone will be recording it and we'll watch it on YouTube uh, when when all is said. It won't disappoint, I guarantee you. (laughs) Well, great. Well, thanks, man. Great talking to you. Cheers. it for this edition of my favorite episode join us again next time as we once again explore another guest pick and be sure to subscribe to my favorite episode on apple Podcasts, stitcher or anywhere you download podcasts also head on over to variety.com for your daily fix of tv news analysis and reviews i'm michael schneider and we'll see you again next time 18- plus.